Have you ever stood on a beach looking out over the ocean and wondered what's out there? I mean, it's just a whole lot of water. Maybe some tanker ships, maybe some floating debris and plastic, maybe a few people out on a cruise ship. Well, that's certainly our part of it. But the ocean is a massive place, and those stories of sea monsters and sirens have to come from somewhere, right? Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science Podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. In the science world, the open ocean is called the pelagic zone, and it's basically defined as any water that isn't near the shore. This region of our Earth is by far the biggest environment our planet has, with a volume of about 300 million cubic miles. That means we could fit about 7,500 Amazon rainforests into that space, 500 billion Pyramid of Giza's, or a trillion Empire State Buildings. That's a lot of water, and a lot of life that inhabits it. But the life that does exist out there has a very specific behavior, because everything is so far from land. The plants and animals that are out there need to be able to survive while just floating or swimming around in the water, no ground involved. But even if there isn't any land around for hundreds of miles, there are still things floating around in the ocean. There's logs, there's shipping containers that met an untimely death, there's plastic, there's research buoys. And when these things are floating around in the ocean, the animals flock to it for a few weeks like it's a new nightclub opening in a college town. I mean, if I was seeing a whole lot of nothing for weeks on end, I'd be excited by something new, too. To tell us all about pelagic zones and the ecosystems and life that they support, let's hear from my friend Brianna. Bri and I work together, but we haven't actually met in person yet because of COVID delays in our sailing season. I still think she's pretty cool anyway, though. Just a few months ago, she was in Florida, completing her master's degree on ocean plastic, a device created by the organization The Ocean Cleanup that is used to capture that plastic, and how fish reacted to that device. Her research was based in the Pacific, so she has lots of adventures to share about life out on the open ocean. Hi, I'm Brianna. I really like to compare pelagic ecosystems to ocean deserts. When you go out into the open ocean, it's just, it's a completely different world out there because there's no structure and this lack of structure really impacts how life behaves. You have your plankton as your primary production, so kind of like the plants, if you will, of the uh, open ocean. And you have these areas that have high biodiversity and just huge swaths that have almost next to nothing. And so you get these huge aggregations of animals that you see in like Blue Planet. And then you (laughs) see lots of nothing when you're out at sea for long periods of time too, which is not what I think most of us would expect going offshore. How can water be a desert? (laughs) Exactly. But it is. So what was your master's degree research specifically about? What were you looking for? Fish in the open ocean follow floating objects. It's just something they do. They've done it forever. Humans have been taking advantage of it forever because where there's floating objects in the ocean, there's all kinds of bait fish and big fish and all kinds of great game fish if you're trying to be a sports fisherman. And so when the ocean cleanup said, hey, we're going to put out this 600 meter long system that was going to sit in a U-shape in the open ocean using wind and wave energy to collect plastic trash, the fish biologists were like, hey, you might have this interaction with these pelagic species. And so, you know, these are your big tunas, your billfish, so like marlin and sailfish, all these big predatory species that will potentially aggregate at this system, which ultimately is what we found. 
So that's what I was studying. It was the pilot test of their system. And so we took about two and a half months worth of data before the system actually ended up failing. We had a construction failure. So they're still kind of back at the drawing boards trying to figure out how to fix that. But we know that in the time that they did deploy it, that they did have a fish aggregation that would last for a few days at a time at the very least. It does take some time for fish to find these floating objects, especially if they're just plopped there. But what's really, I think, cool about my project that I think maybe most people wouldn't know is that we were using pulses of sound to look for fish in the water column. So you can see down to about 10 feet or like three-ish meters when you're just looking in the water from the surface or on top of your big research vessel. But with the buoys that I was using, we can consistently get estimates of the biomass beneath the buoys down to 150 meters, which is so cool because you're using sound to just kind of like have a pair of binoculars and just look straight down. Sound has been used to look into the depths of the ocean for about 100 years. Its most famous use is to look for wartime enemy submarines. But like a lot of science, researchers then use technology developed during wars to learn more about our planet. Sonar, or sound navigation and ranging, works by emitting a sound into the water. When that sound hits something, it bounces back to the device. The time it takes to come back and the strength of the signal can tell us what the sound bounced off of and where it was. It's kind of like yelling into a canyon and hearing your voice echo back, just underwater and with fish. When scientists use sonar these days, it's often in the form of a buoy floating around on the surface of the water. I'm like, I don't know why the software allows you to do this, but it has nicknames for buoys. You bet that I named all of my buoys. And so we had Bob and not Bob. And then like I named them after like a whole bunch of Disney characters because you could also change the color of the buoys on the app. So I had Sebastian and I had Scuttle and I had Hey Hey and Hey Hey is the one that survived. I would like to point out that the only buoy that remained upright the entire time was Hey Hey. And I was like, this checks out. The pelagic chicken, man. So how deep was the water that you were working in? So we were working in 4,000 meters. I remember walking up to the bridge of our boat, which was 90 meters, which is ginormous compared with your standard sailing vessel. And so we'd walk up to the bridge in the morning or in the evening and look at the chart. And I remember leaving San Francisco. It was pretty deep, but like we got into like the 4,000 meter range and I was like, that's a lot of water. That's more water than I ever care to think about because that's like 12,000 feet. That's probably a lot more than 12,000 feet, but like on a really rough estimate, that's a lot of water. And that's a lot of stuff that's beneath me that I cannot see, which as someone who's grown up loving the ocean and is not really afraid of sharks when I go out swimming, like always looking for them when I'm out snorkeling, I don't know what's so disconcerting about the ground not being for 12,000 feet below me because functionally it's no different than if it's like 12 feet below me because I still can't see it. Like if the bottom's not there, the bottom's not there. But horrifying that (laughs) so much water out there. So now let's get into what I'm sure you're all waiting for. What actually lives out in the open ocean? Well, first off, there's the phytoplankton. These are tiny little creatures that turn sunlight into energy, and as Bree said, they're kind of like this ecosystem's version of our land plants. They float around near the surface of the water, doing their thing, until another organism comes along and eats it. These phytoplankton-eating creatures are the ones we may start to recognize, like jellies and krill, and in turn feed other pelagic creatures, from fish to turtles to whales. There are hundreds of species that live out in the open ocean that we know about, and honestly, probably hundreds more that we don't know about. When you think about it, Bree's sound buoys saw 150 meters down into the ocean, 
which is about 500 feet. But the average depth of the ocean is 2.3 miles, or 12,100 feet, 24 times the distance that breeze buoys could see. The occasional times we do get to see what lives down there, either through submarines, when a fishing boat pulls up an accidental catch, or something washes up on shore, we come to realize it's a weird world. Giant squid, for example, can be up to 50 feet long. They were first scientifically discovered in the 1800s and are often thought to be a base for sea monster myths. People have been out sailing on the ocean for thousands of years, though, and so there are some surface-dwelling creatures we do know a lot about. To give you all a taste of some of the cool animals that might be hanging out on the surface of the ocean, Bree and I will highlight a few species that live in these ocean deserts and have been seen by human eyes. So I didn't see them firsthand, but one of the days that we were in this little auxiliary boat, you know, sailing around near the system, and everyone was making a commotion on the bridge and like pointing. And so we're looking out and we're like, and we're really low to the water, guys. You guys are 20 meters up. <laughs> and so we got back on board and they had seen a pod of sperm whales. Sperm whales are amazingly cool, weird, powerful, amazing cetaceans. There's some of the loudest things in the ocean too, like organically loud. Uh, obviously humans are the loudest by far, but they have an incredible pulse of sound that they can generate through their melon with that spermaceti oil, which is what they're named for. And it's so cool. And they've got these crazy wrinkles down their back and like their face is really smooth and scarred. Oh my gosh, it was so cool. So we got some really cool drone footage of that and watching that, I was just like, loop it, I wanna watch it again. Sperm whales are toothed whales, meaning they eat large animals rather than those tiny krill like some other whales do. Remember that giant squid I mentioned earlier? Yeah. Sperm whales eat those. These whales are about 40 to 50 feet long and have really big heads where their spermaceti oil lives. This oil was great for lights and candles in the 18 and 1900s, so sperm whales were hunted, doing damage to their population. Currently, sperm whales are listed as endangered species, but their population is starting to recover now that commercial whaling was stopped in 1986. Female sperm whales live together in pods with their young. When the boys are teenagers, they leave the family pod and make another group together. Then, after they're about 20 or so, they go off on their own to find a mate. And to bring a little literature into this narrative, Moby Dick is a sperm whale. To borrow a quote from Herman Melville, there was enough in the earthly make and incontestable character of the monster to strike the imagination with unwanted power. I saw my first mahi-mahi or dolphinfish or dorado, depending on where you were raised and our boat because we were towing this 600 meter system behind us had to go really slow we calculated it out it's my average swimming speed which is pretty cool but real slow for a big boat and so we had this small school of mahi come and hang out with us and they were beautiful just flashing that like shimmery blue green and just right on the bow and it was such a great day i love mahi Mahi-mahi are fish that can grow up to 7 feet long and 88 pounds in their 5-year lifespan. And they have a lot of babies in those 5 years. And I mean a lot. They spawn every 2-3 to three days and release 50,000 eggs every time. Mahi also really get into floating objects, grouping around them, possibly for a change in scenery in the big wide ocean. They even rub up against the objects, scratching their backs with the only thing around. We also did these manta trawls where we would be looking for microplastics, just a transect on our way out to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch to kind of try to document where microplastics are. 
And for a section of it, we caught a whole bunch of these by the wind sailors, which are the best. And they have this cute little sail. They're nice and oval shaped and bright blue. And we caught some and I was so excited. I have loved these since undergrad because they have the best genus and species on the face of the planet, which is Valella Valella. Valella Valella are also one of my favorite animals. They're blue jellyfish that float on the surface of the water with a stiff part of them sticking up out of it. Like a sail, it catches the wind and moves them around to new parts of the ocean where they can find their food. Each one is only a few centimeters across, but if winds are strong enough, they can sometimes get blown on shore by the hundreds. So next time you're out on a beach that borders pelagic waters, keep an eye out for these little dudes. I worked with turtles briefly last summer at Miami-Dade County. And we had leatherbacks, which are pelagic turtles that we know next to nothing about because they have these like huge, huge migration patterns and they just spend so much time in the open ocean. And I just can't even imagine what it's like to spend a year not seeing anyone else of your species and in their case out eating jellies and just being a turtle. Like that is so cool. And they span whole ocean basins. Since we've talked about pelagic mammals, fish, and jellies, we also had to throw reptiles into the mix. Leatherback sea turtles are born on land, but they do spend a significant amount of time out in the open ocean as they migrate from their egg-laying beaches to their food-filled seas, sometimes traveling up to 10,000 miles. Like Bree said, they eat jellyfish, which might seem a little hard to swallow, both figuratively and literally, but leatherbacks actually have spines in their mouth and throat to keep the jellies down after they've been caught. I think every opportunity to see life on the open ocean is really magical, again, because it's so sporadic in its nature. It's so humbling to realize that they're so well designed for this system where like, if I don't have my big boat with the power it generates, all of that contributes to my ability to be out there for longer and be a full-fledged scientist thinking and writing my master's thesis out there. But when you're out swimming in the ocean, I feel like we come to immediate grips how poorly designed we are for that and not having webbed hands or toes and, you know, not having gills or a blowhole on top of our head. All of these things contribute to just such a well-designed animal. And it's just amazing how much is out there and how well adapted they are to be there. I love pelagics, so <laughs> a little biased. Well, I am really stoked to get to sail with you in Pacific Northwest this summer whenever we finally get back on a boat together. <laughs> It'll be great. We're going to have so much fun. So much fun. And in the meantime, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. All about those pelagics. Thanks for having me. If people want to find you on the internet and learn more about the research that you're doing, where can they find you? So they can find me at this blog is trash.weebly.com, which really leans into the fact that I am a millennial scientist. So come check it out. <laughs> thanks. And now for our episode recap. The pelagic zone of an ocean is basically just the open ocean, or any part of the water that doesn't directly interact with the land. These giant blue regions house their own specific ecosystems with patterns that can mimic a desert. In places with phytoplankton, or floating objects, species can congregate and have a party. But otherwise, it's mostly just a lot of water, especially for us humans who can only see a few feet down into the sea. Sonar allows us to peer a little deeper into the depths, but there is still a lot out there we don't know. Giant squid are massive creatures, but most of what we know is actually from finding them in the stomachs of sperm whales. 
Out in the open ocean, there are creatures whose numbers today are a small portion of what they once were, like sperm whales and leatherback sea turtles, and there are creatures with babies galore, like mahi-mahi. There are creatures who are pushed around by the power of the ocean and wind, like phytoplankton and Valella Valella, and then there are creatures who choose their own way, like us. We may not be designed for long stints in the open ocean, but we're humans, and we like to push the boundaries of what we once thought was impossible. We climb Everest, we travel to the deepest part of the ocean, we live in Antarctica in the Sahara Desert, and we exist, for months at a time, out in the watery world of the Pelagic Ocean. Information about the creatures in this episode comes from Evgeny Romanov's 2018 paper, A Giant Squid Off Reunion Island, Western Indian Ocean, and the NOAA Fisheries website. Pelagic zone size calculations are from my own brain, so let's hope that I can still do basic math after months of quarantine. And for more information about the plastic collecting device created by The Ocean Cleanup, you can visit their website, theoceancleanup.com. Thanks for listening!